Well, today's passage is Psalm 18, 1 through 19. I want to encourage you to turn there with me. Psalm 18, 1 through 19. Let's stand as we read God's Word. I love you, O Lord, David says, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of shale entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He, he bowed the heavens and came down, thick darkness under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew, came swiftly on the wings of the wind." He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place, he rescued me. Because he delighted in me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, these powerful words by David, words that encourage us, amaze us, Father, inspire us to to trust you more, to realize that you are the mighty God who saves. And so we thank you, Lord, for your blessings, your mercies this morning, and ask that you would help us to understand your word. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know about you, but the description of God in verses 7 through 18 is pretty awe-inspiring. The earth is reeling and rocking, and the foundations of mountains are trembling and quaking and Smoke goes up from God's nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. He's throwing hailstones and coals of fire around as he thunders in the heavens and flashes forth lightning. Everything is so earth-shaking that David describes in verse 15 the water being hurled, shaken from the ocean such that the channels of the sea can be seen. Have you ever seen the Mariana Trench? Some three miles beneath the surface of the ocean, 
You've seen it on a map, but you've not seen it in person, right? The trench itself extends farther down beneath that uh, bottom surface or the bottom floor of the ocean down another four miles to its deepest portion. So uh, at the deepest part of the Mariana Trench, from the top of the water down to the bottom is seven miles. If you put Mount Everest in the trench, the top of the water would still be a mile and a half above its peak. And so David's speaking metaphorically here, but he's trying to use the most illustrative and and powerful images he can to describe what God does when he comes to rescue his child. And just in case you missed that last part, I didn't say that these images describe that what God does when he marches in judgment against his enemies. That's what we would expect, right? With all of that description, that that is God marching in judgment against his enemies, but rather this is describing God coming to rescue his child. And all of this, David says in verse 19, is because God delights in me. And I want that to sink in for a moment because... What David's saying is that God rises from his heavenly throne, casting oceans out of the way, throwing hailstones and lightning bolts because he delights in us. Because like a father whose child is in danger, he would do anything necessary to save that child. And you may be shaking your head at that because you have a hard time fathoming That could be the description of God. Because for too many of us, I think God is the one that we invoke in prayer. He's the words on the pages of Scripture or an abstract concept. Sometimes he's more, especially when it comes to seeing him as holy or just. And, you know, we read the Old Testament and we certainly see and accept that God is sovereign and holy and that that pure, absolute righteousness of God led to the necessity of Christ upon the cross. And all of that leads us to recognize our own depravity, which is good. It's a necessary step to turning in faith to Christ. And what often happens next, though, is that we start thinking that God is absolutely angry at us, but that He is absolutely committed to His Son. And we say things like, well, when God looks at us, he sees his son. He sees Jesus, not us. And then when we read about crucifying the old man and our sin nature, there's a temptation to treat that as if what really means is that we are crucifying ourselves and that all that is left is Jesus Christ. And I was talking about this with Wendy this past week, and she made the good point that in, in Romans chapter 8, the creation groans for deliverance. And it's not a deliverance to be destroyed, but a deliverance to be renewed. And Romans 8.20 says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What this tells us is 
that the creation has been subjected to futility and it cannot wait, figuratively speaking, to be set free from bondage to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And does it make sense then to say that it is waiting to be set free from bondage only to be destroyed? It doesn't make sense to say that. Similarly, Paul continues there in the rest of that passage, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what Paul is saying is in a parallel way, our own new creation is a rebirthing. It's a renewal that doesn't destroy us, but rather removes that which was of the flesh, that which was subjected to futility and to bondage. Well, what does that have to do with Psalm 18? Simply this, that our tendency to overly focus on the sovereign holiness and wrath of God, which is absolutely a part of God's character, and the subsequent tendency to overly focus on God's wrath against our sin, again, a vitally important subject, often makes it difficult for us to grasp and take in the words of Psalm 18, words which tell us that God moves heaven and earth because he delights in us. You know that he delights in his son, but he also delights in you. And he desires that your joy would be full. That's what Jesus told the disciples on the night of the crucifixion. He said in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that, your, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And I want you to hear these words. Several years ago when we went through the book of Revelation together, at one point, I was using some passages from the minor prophets, including Zephaniah, and I'd come across Zephaniah chapter 3, which was a passage I had not read in depth for, for many times that I had read through Zephaniah, but there was something about it this time a few years ago that, that just caught me. And you can see it here where Zephaniah, beautiful words, especially towards the end of this passage, says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. And this, this passage in Zephaniah looked prophetically forward to the time when God for his people would take away 
judgment against sin. And we know that ultimately happened in Christ, but I hope, hope you see those last two verses. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. And this passage in Zephaniah coordinates perfectly with Psalm 18. The mighty one, the Lord our God, saves us. And just as David says in verse 19 that God delights in us, so Zephaniah says the Lord does these three things. He rejoices over us, he quiets us, he exults over us with loud singing. God rejoices over us with gladness. And that word rejoice in Hebrew... It describes what God does is the same word used at the beginning of this passage to describe what we are commanded to do, where it says, God tells Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart. Well, that's what God does. He rejoices with all his heart. But you say, how could God love me? After all, Hebrews 4.12 says that God discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Psalm 139.2 says that God knows when I sit down and when I rise up, discerning my thoughts from afar. In fact, before a word is on my tongue, Psalm 139.4 says that God knows it all together. Psalm 94.11 says that God knows the thoughts of man. So how could there be any hope for me? Well, the issue is not who you are or what you've done. The issue is God's commitment and determination to love you. If you look at this passage in Psalm 103, you see the Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor keep his anger forever. And he does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. And as far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. And that last verse is very important. It begins with the word for, which means that the next words in that sentence, are either a conclusion or they're an explanation of what comes before it. Why does God show us compassion? What's the explanation here? Because he knows our frame. Yes, he does know your heart. He knows your sin. He knows your weakness. And... What this psalm says is because he knew that, he knew that the only way to lavish his love upon you was to save you from your sin. And none of that means, of course, that God approves of your sin. Paul reminds us in Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, right? How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's an excellent question. Since God who knows about our sin chose to love us and save us despite our sin, doesn't that mean that it really doesn't matter in a sense if I keep sinning because it's all been forgiven? But Paul's answer is, no, God's love for us 
in the face of our sin motivates us to live for him. He freed us from bondage. He gave us a new heart. He awakened our conscience and gave us a love for goodness and righteousness. So why then would we want to continue in the cesspool of sin? And don't miss Paul's words a few chapters later in Romans 8 where he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that, that's such a famous statement, but it's made even more profound by what we've seen so far today. If God who knows our thoughts, he knows our hearts, and in fact, because of that knowledge, as Psalm 103 said, because of that knowledge, move to your rescue out of his steadfast love, who did not spare his own son, Paul says, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, heights, depth, anything else in all creation, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't it amazing to think that despite who we are in our inmost beings, at least who we are under the bondage to sin, that God loved us and loves us to that degree. That he could rejoice in, over us with gladness. It helps make sense of a, a verse like Jeremiah 31, 20, where God speaks to himself saying, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. And as I said earlier, we have to be careful that in that equation of God's holiness, our own depravity, God's renewal of us, rebirthing of us, that we don't fall into a wrong theological conception that we lose ourselves. God frees us from bondage to sin. Like the creation that is removed from the futility of sin, He removes us from the futility of sin as well. But He restores us And he loves us. And we see this tenderness here, this compassion, this great love of God, not just for his son, but for you, his son and daughter. And going back to Zephaniah 3, we also learn that the Lord quiets us by his love and all of all of your anxieties about the future, your concerns about justice, your fears, they are quieted in the face of the love that we read described in Romans 8 or Jeremiah 31. But you know what stopped me the most when I read that Zephaniah 3 passage a few years ago? It was that final element that God exalts over us with loud singing. That was the image that I've gone back to several times since, this picture of a God not just mouthing the words of a worship song 
so that like someone who doesn't want to be heard singing, right? Like so many of us men do. But someone who exults with loud singing. It's a goosebumps type of singing, I think. A singing that gets louder and more exuberant. It's the type that, like in a musical like Les Mis, where the people start gathering in with their voice and, and the, the, the rousing chorus gets louder and louder and, and you are moved along with the song. It's a singing that everyone stops and pays attention to. In the Hebrew, it actually says a ringing cry. And the one singing according to Zephaniah is God. Martin Luther once said that singing enables the soul to express deeply felt emotions that mere speaking cannot. It channels our spiritual energy in a way that nothing else can. And perhaps some of the reason that we struggle ourselves with exuberant singing in our worship is that we struggle with really being able to say we have deeply felt emotions in our joy and gratitude and love or that we truly have the spiritual energy of commitment and praise that would motivate that kind of singing. We're far too moderated and self-controlled. And this despite the fact that more than 80 times in the Old Testament we are either commanded to sing praise to God or we read about someone who does that to God's delight. And so is it any wonder then that God who delights in you to that degree, the kind of God who rejoices over you with gladness, quiets you with his love, actually exults over you with a ringing cry and loud singing, would actually rise to your defense. And going back to Psalm 18, David says how he loves the Lord and calls upon him in his time of need. And probably in your Bibles, you realize that Psalm 18 is included nearly word for word in 2 Samuel 22. And that chapter in 2 Samuel occurs near the end of David's life, and he is rejoicing, David is, that God has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. There, And you know all of the things that David had faced by that time. Been delivered from Saul, from Goliath, from various enemies. And there were times, as he shares in verses 4 through 6, where he felt that his life was in danger. But this led him even more to call out to the Lord in distress. And the Lord heard the voice of his child. Do you have that kind of confidence? In 2 Timothy 4, 17, Paul writes, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And so the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. And in 2 Corinthians 1.9, he says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was only to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You hear Paul there saying, God has delivered us. He will deliver us again. 
How can we doubt that the one who redeemed and ransomed us from the power of sin will not deliver us from death? Paul says, this one will rescue us from every evil deed. He will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And in the second letter here, we see Paul's own conclusion. The sentence of death, a physical death, was upon him. But was he depressed? Was he anxious? No, he says the fact that we are still involved in the spiritual war, a war that includes having to die, is meant to make us rely not on ourselves, but but upon God who raises the dead. So the same God who rejoices over you, who exultantly sings over you, invites you to trust him. He who has delivered you to salvation will deliver you from the last enemy, death. And so, I then invite you to look at these last few verses here, right after Psalm 18, 19, where David continues, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. And given all that we've talked about with regard to God committing to love us despite our sin, in fact, because of our weakness, moving towards us and taking the initiative. Perhaps these five verses seem a little out of place because this is David, right? Who's the one who committed adultery, who committed murder. He's saying that the Lord has dealt with him according to the righteousness and cleanness of his hands. Is he actually saying that? Meaning that he's righteous and blameless? Yes and no. Sure, you love answers like that. Yes, there's a real sense in which David was regarded by the Lord as being righteous. And of course, we know that this is only made possible because of of Jesus. But still, despite knowing that he is a sinner, David has a clean conscience that he is walking with the Lord. It's the same confidence that we have, even though we struggle with sin every day. We know there's something different set apart from us that God has called us his child and he has given us his favor. On the other hand, in saying no, David isn't saying that the Lord has fully dealt with him according to his righteousness and cleanness of of hands. There is an aspect to this psalm, just like we've seen in other psalms, where David is speaking beyond himself. Right? We've seen how there have been times throughout the psalms that we go, there's no way that David could truly be fully referring to himself. He didn't even have some of those experiences. And we've said these are messianic foretellings of Christ, the greater son of David. And there is that aspect here, I think, as well as 
as we see David speaking beyond himself. And in fact, in verse 50, the last verse of the psalm reads, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And as, as we read these things, we go, well, yes, there was a sense in which David had a, a good conscience that, that God had called him and made him righteous, but there really is only one who is truly righteous, one who truly has clean hands and keeps the way of the Lord and is blameless, and that is David's offspring, Jesus Christ. So yes, compared to the wicked, David walks with the Lord. But even David in Psalm 14.2 writes, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, which includes him, to see if there is any who understand and seek after God, but they have all turned aside and together become corrupt. And there is none. And he would, I think, quickly put himself in that category. There is none who does good, not even one. But I just keep coming back to the fact that the Lord has committed to love you despite the fact that you are among those who do no good. That you weren't an exception to that rule. And it's also amazing what God has done. He's not only committed to love you, He not only delights in you, He sings over you, He rejoices over you in gladness, but He has adopted you as a son or daughter and given you the kingdom. For as Jesus told the disciples in Luke 12, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And John in 1 John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Those are remarkable statements. You've been given the kingdom. God knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. There's none of us that do good, and yet, because of his sovereign love towards us, the God who knows our frame, who knows our weakness, knows that we are but dust, chose, determined, committed to lavish his love upon you. He delights in you. He rises from his heavenly throne. He casts mountains aside. He empties oceans at the need of his child. That's what we're seeing here in Psalm 18. So Paul in Romans 8, he writes, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And this is wonderful news. And I said at the beginning that what David describes in Psalm 18 is reminiscent of a father moving heaven and earth to rescue his child in distress. Those of you who are parents know that if you had a child that was in distress, you would do whatever you needed to do to rescue him or her. And that is exactly what is happening in Psalm 18 because God has actually adopted you as his child. You are his. And so he not only shows to love you, to give you a heart of faith, to call you to himself, to make you a joint heir with Christ, to give you the kingdom, 
And the same word used to describe the father's good pleasure in his son, the Greek word eudikeo that we hear at Jesus' baptism, that we hear at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Eudikeo is the same word that is used in that passage, Luke 12, 32, to describe the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Eudikeo. So I exhort you to abide in God and His Word, to know yourselves, the shallow passions of your hearts, to know God is is holy, eternal, worthy to receive glory, honor, power, create all things, sustains all things, to know Him as the Lord above all. Those are things we talk about often, but I also exhort you to recognize that the same holy, eternal, glorious, honorable, powerful creator God is also a father who loves you, delights in you, and sings over you. You might not have had an earthly father who had this type of love, and so perhaps it's hard to understand what is being said here. And I encourage you to read through the Bible thoroughly. Keep reading it, because it's in those moments when you come across a Zephaniah 3, or you come across these passages in Jeremiah or Isaiah where God is speaking judgment, and all of a sudden his heart goes, it's like he stops for a minute, but how can I let you go? Ah, I will come and I will rescue you. I, you know, the shepherds, that they've all fled, they've... they've They've devoured the sheep. I will be the shepherd who will go and find you. And I will bring you back. Yes, you may not have had an earthly father who was a good model of these things, but the more you read the scriptures, the more you see this consistency of a tender-hearted God who delights in his people. And you see it most vividly expressed in his sending his son to die in your place for your sin and then offering you his kingdom. And so when you read something like we do in the Psalms by David, the steadfast love is better than life. We were sitting at the table again in part of our devotions because we're going through Psalms on Sunday mornings. We've been reading through Psalms at night at the dinner table Steadfast love occurs as a phrase many, many times in the Psalms. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And perhaps you could see why in clearer detail this morning. And if the love of God is better than life, then it's better than all that life in this world offers. And that's why the psalmist Asaph cries out in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? Beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How could that not be the case when the God whom we serve would stop at nothing to preserve and rescue us? Nothing on earth, not even God's good gifts of creation could satisfy Asaph's heart. 
only God could. That's what drives David at the start of Psalm 18 with, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And I have no good besides you. I commend that to you today, this morning. May that be the the heart cry of your own soul. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the mighty God who loves